0: Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the word of God. Lord, for the revelation that you've given to us. That Lord, you have a plan and a purpose and a direction. And Lord, as we consider the prayer of Hannah here this evening, Lord, I pray for every mother within the sound of my voice who cries out in the night for her child, Lord, I know that you are sensitive to the prayers of a mother. And that, Lord, how the prayers of a mother can transform not just the heart of a son or a daughter, but quite literally transform a nation and the world. And so, Heavenly Father, as we open up the Word of God, I pray... That we would be invited to consider what a wonderful, wonderful God you are. To give you praise and glory. Lord, as you warn the prideful and the self-sufficient. And Lord, you predict the future. Lord, I pray that we would take heed. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our study in 1 Samuel, and again, if for whatever reason you've missed any portion um, of the study, which is one tape, it's in the media room. Since we've just begun our study in the the book of 1 Samuel, we find ourselves in chapter 2, the prayer of Hannah, a prophetic prayer, a mother's prayer chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills. And makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King, And exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. But the child ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. Samuel's father, Elkanah, worships the Lord. That's where we left him in chapter 1, verse 28. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord in Shiloh in the temple as, the, as Samuel's father worships the Lord, Samuel's mother prays to the Lord and her prayer is more than a prayer, it's a song of praise, it's a song of salvation, we know that prayer can take many forms you can pray out loud you can pray silently you can pray standing up you can pray sitting down but you can pray singing. And you can pray saying. And Hannah provides a model for mothers everywhere. You see, her burden is the glory of the Lord among His people. In what way does Hannah model motherhood in every generation? Well, let me point just a couple of things out to you. As a mother, she puts the Lord first. You know, sometimes mothers get confused. And let me tell you what I mean by that. They put their children first. And make no mistake about it. It's a mother's inclination to put her child first. But every mother needs to know that it is the Lord's. We put the Lord first. Because if you put the children first, you run the risk of having a child-centered home instead of a Christ-centered home. She puts the Lord first. She believes in prayer. She keeps her promises. And then she gives God all the glory. That bears repeating. She puts the Lord first. She believes in prayer. She keeps her promise. She gives God the glory. Many of you have heard the expression behind every great man there is a greater woman. Yeah, that's right. You've also heard the expression when God created Adam, He said, I can do better than this. And then He created woman. Behind the great ministry of Samuel, Israel's last great judge and prophet was a praying mother. And there is a powerful, powerful principle invoked right here. I can't even begin to tell you how many powerful ministries were born from the prayers of a mother. And the prayer of Hannah is also the final words that we get from Hannah in the Scripture. Did you know that? In other words, this prayer of a mother as she surrenders her child to the worship of the Lord, becomes her last word. And Hannah gives thanks to the Lord for personal deliverance in in verse 1. Hannah praises the Lord God for himself in verse 2. Hannah then issues a warning to the proud, reminding them that God knows all things and judges all things. And that God has the ability to turn everything around to reverse plans and to reverse purposes of the wicked. And then Hannah prays and predicts the future A future where the Creator God is in complete control. And so, it begins with a prayer of gratitude in verse 1. A song of powerful praise in verse 2. Then she issues a warning for the self-sufficient in verse uh, 3 through 7. And then a prediction of the future in verses 8 through 11. Look again in verse 1. And Hannah prayed. And said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Remember, in the opening chapter, she is hurt and in despair, she is in a pit. By the way, when it says she prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. This is something that might be confusing to some of you. You know, if you're an Italian person, there's two things that you never mention about your mother. A mustache and horns. Now, here, the horn doesn't mean that she has horns. It's a reference, it's a metaphor, if you will, Of strength and power. You see in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament if you will, an animal that has horns would use that horn for offense or for defense. In other words, the size, shape, and structure of the horn determined the animal's ability to protect itself and to protect others. It's her way of saying, My power Or my energy. So when she says, I'm praying, and my heart rejoices in the Lord, my strength, or my power, or my energy has been renewed and lifted up because of the powerful presence of the very real God, she is able to smile at her enemies. By the way, who is her enemy? Well, again, if we read the context, remember in chapter 1, her husband, Elkanah, had another wife. Remember Penina? And Penina was fertile myrtle. For whatever reason, she could just pop those babies. They just came out like it was no problem. And she was in constant despair and constant grief. And because of her barrenness, and because of her emptiness, she would be teased incessantly. Well, clearly that's one enemy, but there's a larger enemy in this larger book called First Samuel, and it's the Philistines. The Philistines were a group of people who put pressure on the people of God constantly. She may be referring to her former barren condition. But the whole point becomes we all have enemies and for us as Christians our enemy isn't simply the person who makes fun of us or the person who's trying to destroy us or the person who constantly seems to put pressure on us. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that for the Christian we have three great enemies. The world the flesh and the devil the world that keeps trying to pour us into its mold the flesh which keeps trying to To take us away from God and the devil, who in his constant wiles and schemes, is trying to trip you up. God's salvation makes us able to bear with them, to run from them, to resist them. And that's why Paul in the New Testament will talk about submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Here, Hannah is able to smile and rejoice. And you know why? Because of God's ability to deliver her out of the hand of her enemy. And so, as you can imagine, think what's happening from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Her barrenness has now become fullness. The emptiness has has been filled. The depression has turned to joy. God has answered her prayer. She's able to smile and rejoice because God has the ability to deliver her out of the hands of her enemy. And you know what? We can smile and rejoice. That's, again, why Paul writes in the New Testament, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Or in Espanol. Rejoice in the Lord. And when he writes those words, he finds himself in a Roman prison. The Lord has delivered Hannah from her barren condition. The Lord has delivered Hannah from the ridicule and the abuse. And so over 21 times in 10 verses, she'll refer to the Lord. The Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord this, the Lord that, just like you. You know how annoying you are to your family and friends? You're always talking about the Lord, the Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord this, the Lord that. It's hard not to talk about the Lord when he's done so much. And then we go to this beautiful song of praise and it becomes the key really of this chapter. In verse 2 it says no one is holy like the Lord for there's none beside you nor is there any rock like our God. Hannah's prayer is rooted in in the holiness of God. he's going. She's going to pray. And as she's celebrating the fact that God is certainly powerful and exclusive and stable. There's two concepts that come to the forefront. One is holiness. And the other one is what I would call incomparability. And incomparability is the concept that there is no one like God. God is a self-existent being. There's two categories of being on that exists. God, the uncreated creator, the self-existent God, and then everything else that's been created. God is powerful and God has taken Hannah. And here's the key concept. God has taken Hannah into a personal partnership. Remember, she's empty and barren. God's giving her a child, but it's not just any child. It's a child dedicated to the Lord. It's a child who will grow up and hear from God. It's a child who is going to be a transitional and transformational figure in the history of Israel. Now Hannah's son and God's will have united in a plan for God's people and the future of God's people. And that becomes the key concept in prayer. It isn't just simply praying, although God knows each and every one of us could certainly benefit by praying more. But it's the benefit of prayer that links God's will with God's plan your gift and your future Samuel will serve the Lord Samuel will speak for the Lord Samuel will speak to the people on behalf of the Lord and by the way there are few joys more rewarding than knowing that God is using you that as you pray and as you minister and you serve that lives are changing and hearts are changing that children are coming to Christ, or that your family and friends are coming to Christ. That as you pray and prepare, that people around you, the people that you come in contact with, the people who are benefiting by your presence and your ministry, there's just this sense of exhilaration that begins to consume you as you begin to understand that you are being used by God to fulfill His plan and to fulfill His future. And that, my friends, is the power of prayer. Oh Lord, use me. Oh Lord, let me participate in the plan that You have. When you pray, when you comfort, when you love, when you encourage, when you uphold, when you intervene, when you confront, when you confess, when you restore, all of a sudden, there is a shift that takes place because the kingdom of God is expanding because of your obedience and submission remember in the first chapter, Hannah like I said, was in the pit of this despair. But now she's in the garden of the light. Hannah's joy is in the Lord. And her joy is rooted and grounded in God's nature in verses 2 and 3. In God's sovereign government in verses 4 through 8. In how God treats the saints in verse 9. In the glorious destiny of the kingdom of the coming Messiah that's referred to, the anointed. And so the Bible is filled with verses that speak of the attributes of God in his self-existence, his transcendence, his eternal nature, his omnipotence, his wisdom, his love. But do you know what is the most talked about attribute in all of the Bible? I'm going to give you a clue. It's his sovereignty. The most talked about attribute in all of the Bible is the sovereignty. That is God's complete ability to order and orchestrate all things according to his own will and according to his own pleasure. But you know what the second most talked about attribute in all of the Bible is? It's this one. His holiness. You'll remember that when the angels go around the throne, they don't say, love, 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 love. Although, hey, the love of God is great, but it's the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When the Bible speaks of holiness, and here as Hannah prays, it is the Hebrew word kadosh. The plural of that word is kadoshim. It speaks of God's absolute otherness, if you will, in this sense, that All of reality and all of existence and all things linked to things human are completely different from God. God is holy. God is completely pure. Unlike the pagan gods and the goddesses in which Hannah is living. Remember, the the predominant world view at this particular time in human history is a thing called polytheism. It's the idea that there are many gods and goddesses. And the, the pagan gods and goddesses were filled with lust and they were filled with temptation and they were filled with limitations. And the reason why they were filled with limitations is because they were the product of human imagination. When you create a god that you have made up in your own mind, clearly that God isn't going to be like the God of the Bible. And so the God of the Bible is holy. And the God of the Bible is just. And the God of the Bible is pure. There's not a single stain. There's not a spot of corruption on His holy character. And His holiness is a terror to the sinner. His holiness is a terror to the sinner because the marked purity, the marked blamelessness, the marked singularity of His holiness is different from us. But it's also a triumph. It's not just a terror to the sinner, but it's a triumph to the justified sinner. Do you realize that when you speak the words holy, holy, holy Lord, it's always in contrast to you. But God, in Christ, Jesus, cleanses you, washes you, purifies you. He, according to the book of Ephesians, adopts you and justifies you. He invites you into the family and fellowship of of His existence, if you will. God maintains His just standard in in a world that's decaying and dying from the stench and the consequences of sin. Somehow, in the circumstances that we find ourselves in a world that is spinning out of control, Headed for grosser and deeper wickedness. Here is this God who maintains His justice and holiness. The Lord is holy and the Lord is incomparable. And that's what she says. There's none besides you. It's her way of saying... No other God, no other God compares to our God in the way that we would think about that. Remember, the primary worldview at this time is polytheism, but what's the primary worldview in the world you're living in? There are two predominant worldviews. The first one is what I would call naturalistic atheism. We live in a world where a lot of people believe that through some sort of coagulation of random circumstances, you just sort of appeared. The universe just sort of appeared. The earth just sort of appeared. Um, Inorganic material became organic material. And somehow that organic material assumed consciousness and somehow achieved self-awareness and then invented gods and goddesses. But we've outgrown that. That's naturalistic atheism. It's a world that envisions a world where there really is no God. But guess what? In a world where there is no God, there's also no heaven and there's also no hope. It's a world of emptiness and doubt and loneliness. It's a world where everyone is out for themselves. The other one is a rational monotheism. And by that I mean a worldview that embraces the idea that there is a God and if you go to your family and you go to your friends and you go to your neighbors and you ask them, do you believe in God? What are they going to typically say? Of course they believe in God. But it's a God of their own imagination. It's a God who doesn't mind if they sleep with their neighbor's wife or their neighbor's husband. It's, it's a world in which it's okay to lie and cheat. It's, it's, a, it's a, that people make mistakes. It's a world in, in which there is a God, but this God is like Grandpa in the sky where He's winking at your inconsistencies and your failures. He's not a holy God. He's the God who lets you continue to live however you want to live. But that's not the God of the Bible. And look at verse 3. It says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the Lord God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. She goes from a song of praise to a warning to the self-sufficient. And so when she says, Talk no more so very proudly. She's inviting the Lord to silence his critics. God sees the heart. God sees not only what's going on inside of the human heart, but he also sees what people do, the deeds. And so she's in effect saying God knows the heart. God knows the deeds. We're better off if we trust the Lord. In verse uh, in Proverbs 16:2 it says all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. And in verse 4, it says the bows of the mighty men are broken. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. In verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. The hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. In verse 7, the Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. And the Lord brings low and the Lord lifts up. You know what verse? four and five and six and seven all have in common. It's Hannah's prayer. It's her way of saying, you know what? The Lord can turn this thing around. That's the central thought. The central thought that, that Hannah is praying is, is still captured in what's already happened in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Remember, she is hurt and she is depressed and she is angry and she is empty. And the Lord fills her up. That's the idea. The Lord can turn your circumstances around. The Lord can make the direction that you are going, He can turn it around. If you've been walking in a a direction of disobedience and rebellion, He can make you go in the opposite direction. If you've lived a life of rebellion and disobedience, He can break your heart and change your heart and turn the circumstances around. Here's what Hannah's prayer means. What happened to Hannah on a, on a, on a small scale is about to happen to the nation. They have been choked and strangled by their enemy, the Philistines. And we live in a world and we live in a culture where we have been choked and strangled. You see, there are people who want to trivialize you and paint you out to be a nutcase. You guys believe that the Bible is true? Oh, you guys believe that there's a real God who listens and cares? You believe that there's a God who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins? You guys go to church and you go to Bible study and you open up your Bible and you guys guys act like all of that stuff is true. And they put pressure on you. Pressure. But here's the point. The Lord deals righteously with people and with nations people have rebelled against God and they've rebelled against his Messiah. Who stands against God? This is the warning. The proud, the selfish, the self-sufficient men who have material wealth, money, power. They use their money and their power to suppress the truth and oppress the poor. Hannah is basically praying and pointing to the men who use their might to injure the needy. In verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken. Here's the idea. The source of power of the people who have hurt you in the past are now over with. Now here's the idea. We live in a world where lots of people over the course of a lifetime can invariably hurt you. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, bosses, governments, churches. There's lots of people who can take the form of hurting you. But here's Hannah's prayer. The bows of the mighty are broken. Question. Who broke them? God broke them. Here is part of the point of the prayer. Your enemy's ability to wage war against you is broken. Now, ultimately, that takes the form of the world and the flesh and the devil as far as the Christian is concerned. Do we live in a broken world? Yes, we do. Do broken people still break each other's hearts? Yes, they do. But God has broken the power of sin in the person of Jesus. God has sent His Son into the world so that you didn't have to be conformed to the world. This is why Paul again writes in the book of Romans that you're to submit yourself to God. That you're not to be conformed to this world but rather transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is why Jesus died on the cross so that He could break the power of Satan Over your life. This is why he sent the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's job to come inside of you and to fill you. And to give you the power that you will be needing in order to face the challenges and the tests and the temptations. The power of God has broken the mechanism of your enemy in order to subjugate you in bondage and terror. Of the idea. Those who were weak and staggering in her prayer are given strength. By the way, the mercenaries, you know who the mercenaries are. These are the guns for hire. These are the people who are willing not only to pick a fight but wage war to the highest bidder, but now they have to hire themselves out just to eat bread. The idea being there's no work for them, they don't have a job to do. We should be praying that the world and the flesh and the devil... Can you imagine Satan sitting around twiddling his thumbs? Because he has nothing to do. Because you're living a life of joy and obedience and submission. You're living a life of triumph in Christ. Hannah uses the figures of soldiers and then family. The barren are given children... That's what it says in verse 5. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave and He brings up here is really the idea. God is reversing the fortunes of those people who are experiencing emptiness and loneliness and darkness and wickedness and depression. That's the prayer. He's turning things around. Let the poor be encouraged. And then she prays. Let the rich be warned what do you mean let the poor be encouraged let the rich be warned why because there is a temptation that the rich embrace and that is to trust riches those who are poor don't seek into despair the lesson is this be careful not to offend God whether you're rich or whether you're poor That's the same thing that's spoken of in the book of James in the New Testament, isn't it? Is it a sin to be rich? No. Is it a sin to be poor? No. The temptation of the rich is to trust the riches. The temptation of the poor is to compromise or do things that are inconsistent with their own character and the word of God in order to get stuff. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear. This is the lesson of the prayer of Hannah. Live in such a way that you honor God. Live in a way that you glorify God. Live in a way that you seek the favor of God. Because if you're living in a way to honor and glorify and the favor of God, the character or the attributes of character that offend God... Our pride and self seeking and self sufficiency and living a life apart from God. It's living a life that denies the basic provision of God. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, you'll remember when we were studying in the book of Isaiah, it said, For thus says the high and the lofty one, the God who inhabits eternity, whose name is. Holy, I dwell in the high and the holy place with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Remember when we were studying in the book of Isaiah, the the idea is how do you get to heaven? How do you connect with God? How do you make a connection with a God who is high and holy? It's counterintuitive. Here's how you make the connection with the God who is high and holy. It's in humility and contrition. Here's the the secret of a right relationship with God. It's to get closer and closer to God. You don't go higher and higher. You go lower and lower. You don't think more and more of yourself. You think less and less of yourself. And when you think, less and less, then all of a sudden God becomes more and more. And she prays, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He has set the world upon them When it says he raises the poor from the dust, he lifts the beggar from the ash heap. Again, he is reversing the fortune. It's like a country western song. Your wife comes back. Your dog is healed. Instead of crying in your beer, you now have the the wine of gladness. You see, that's the real key. The real key is sometimes we become so hurt and we become so broken and we become so entrenched in a pattern of being distant and depressed. But the Lord is making all of that change. It says, And He lifts the beggar from the ashi to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. The Lord doesn't hate wealth. And the Lord doesn't hate abundance. And the Lord doesn't hate riches. The Lord hates what wealth and riches and abundance sometimes does to certain people. You see, very few saints can pass the test of wealth. Riches, abundance, possession, sometimes breeds contempt for those who don't have it again what happens it isn't just simply the acquisition of things it's the, it's the hurtful attitudes that begin to take place in, in your heart and my heart as we begin to think of ourselves better than the person who's next to us if riches breed pride if possessions breed contempt for the poor sometimes it pleases God to take those things away B.G. Blakely wrote over a hundred years ago. "Quote in a spiritual sense, there is no more important ingredient of character in God's sight than the sense of emptiness and the conviction that all goodness, all strength, all blessing must come from God. The heart is thus emptied. That it, that's the heart that's prepared to welcome the grace." that is offered to supply its needs Do you realize that sometimes the best thing that you could possibly have is an empty hand because with the empty hand God says I'm going to fill that empty hand with the very specific thing that you need In verse 9, look what it says. He will guard the feet of all his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. When Hannah prays that prayer, he will guard the feet of his saints. What does she mean? Are we talking about opening up a footlocker store? No. In the Bible, our Feet refer to the places that we go. That's what that means. The idea is that He will guard the places where we walk. It means the steps in this earthly life. It means the Lord God is guarding the direction that you find your feet taking you. Some of you are old enough to remember these boots are made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over. <laughs> okay, you guys remember, yeah. It's that's the exact opposite of this passage. Your feet were never meant to walk over all over each other our feet weren't meant to trample each other our feet weren't meant to be used to run away from God God guards the steps of his saints the Lord God wants to make sure that you're stepping out in the right direction and that's the idea the Lord God keeps you. He guides you. directs you. So that you don't wander in the, in the wrong direction. But look what it says But the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The idea being guess what? There will come a time when all of the people who have all of the things to say that your faith doesn't matter, that your belief doesn't matter, that the Bible doesn't matter, that hope doesn't matter, that love doesn't matter, that faith doesn't matter. Remember, remember, remember. This is one of the things that the incomparable God provides. Because guess what? Whether the wicked want to believe it or not, they are wicked. Guess what the wicked needs? The wicked needs forgiveness. Wicked people need forgiveness and they need hope. And they, they, they need an ability to have their sins dealt with so that they can have a right relationship with God in Christ. But when the wicked refuses grace and refuses mercy, they have no place to go except to sit in silence. Look what it says, For by strength no man shall prevail. In other words, on your own willpower. A person apart from God, by their own willpower, can never reach God. And look what it says in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord deals with his adversaries. That means the wicked critics will be dealt with. Now, some have suggested that the prayer, Hannah's song, was written sometime after Samuel became the prophet and anointed Saul, and then later an anointed David king over Israel. It may be. But I'm going to make another suggestion. There might be another explanation. I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps the king that Hannah sees isn't Saul and it isn't David, but it's David's son. It's a future king, it's a true king, it's the eternal king. In this mother's prayer, is it possible that she's seeing King Jesus? Perhaps guided by the Holy Spirit, her heart anticipates a king. A king who will rule in righteousness in the land. But this king doesn't simply rule in righteousness in the land. This king rules in her heart. And now she begins to see prophetically that her emptiness and her barrenness becomes a mechanism of filling because God has a plan and that's to fill not simply a mother's heart with hope but to fill a nation's heart with hope think about it for just a moment Hannah's son will become a bridge to another son Hannah's son will give place for God's Son. Hungry, hurting souls will be guided to another Son who gives living water, who Himself is the living bread. It says in verse 11, then Elkanah, her husband, went to his house at Ramah. Remember, that's 15 miles As you're traveling north, about five miles north of Jerusalem, it says, But the child, this is Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. You know, it's interesting, William Kuyper used to say, And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. There's something powerful. There's something earth-shaking that takes place when one saint in humility cries out to God for the provision of God. A western rancher once asked the district superintendent to have a pastor assigned to his community. And the, the man said, Well, how big a man do you want? Well, elder, the wiry, tanned man said, We're not overly particular, but when he's on his knees, we want him to be able to reach all the way to heaven. That's the kind of pastor you want. That's the kind of mother you want. That's the kind of father you want. That's the kind of husband you want. That's the kind of wife you want. We pray. We hear Hannah's prayer. And we remember some things about prayer. That when we come into God's presence, we celebrate God's person. We celebrate His power. We celebrate His attributes and His character. When we come into God's presence, we celebrate how He deals with people. And we celebrate how God deals with circumstances. And when we come into God's presence... We celebrate God's compassion toward the weak and toward the needy, toward what the world calls the helpless or the useless. We know the Lord loves the needy. The Lord loves the oppressed and the poor. And God loves us. And if we feel weak, and if we feel helpless, if we feel that in a world where the strong seems to prosper, we have confidence in the biblical revelation that God helps not those who help themselves, but the helpless. God reverses the fortunes of the weak. You know, one of the things that's really, truly remarkable, like I said about Hannah's prayer, it gives us permission to cry out to God to say to the Lord you can turn this thing around you can change the circumstances of my heart you can change the circumstances of my marriage you can change the circumstances of my job you can, you can change the circumstances, it can all be reversed Ken Chapin wrote it is in moments of worship. That we are lifted high enough to see the final triumph of the people of God even in the midst of difficult and discouraging circumstances. And that's what prayer does. It has the ability to lift you just a little bit higher so that you can see just a little bit further. Do you realize that Hannah's prayer Is an answer to prayer What do you do when God delivers you From trial and tragedy What do you do when God answers your prayers and confirms your hope and establishes your future? Because guess what? Every moment of every day becomes a special opportunity to thank God for His goodness, to thank God for the provision, to thank God for all of those empty places that the Lord continuously seems to fill. There is one thanksgiving that must take precedence over every other thing. And that's the thankfulness that we have to God for His unspeakable gift, the Lord Jesus. Remember what you used to have? Emptiness, but now you have fullness. Remember what you used to have? Sin, but now you have forgiveness. Do you remember what you used to have? The certainty of hell, but now you have the promise of heaven. No wonder, Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again. We are born again unto a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Jesus Christ gives you hope and love and forgiveness. What does this world give you? Emptiness. Loneliness. Darkness. Tragedy. R.A. Torrey many, many years ago talked about the prescription that would bring revival. He wrote, I can give a prescription that will bring revival, revival to any church or or community, any city on earth. Number one, let a few Christians get thoroughly right with God. If this is not done, the rest will come to nothing. Number two, let them bind themselves together to pray for revival until God opens the windows and heaven comes down. And number three, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for His use as He sees fit in winning others to Christ. That's all. I've given this prescription around the world, and in no instance has it failed. It cannot fail. Isn't that good? Number one, let a few Christians get thoroughly right with God. Is that you? Is that a description of your heart and your circumstances? Have you been frustrated? Empty? Lonely Maybe it's time For revival to begin New Let a few Christians Get thoroughly right With God Not every Christian I'm happy if just a few Just a few examine your heart just a few cry out to God. Just a few look at Hannah's prayer and say, Lord, if you can take a barren woman and make her a blessing, if you can take someone who's empty and make them full, if you can take someone who is distant and alone and make them connected, if you can take someone who felt way far away from God and now in partnership with God. Let it be me. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Lord, we do pray. Like Hannah prayed. That, Lord, we can rejoice in You, in Your beauty, in Your majesty, in Your holiness. In your incomparability, there's no one and nothing like you. There is no God like our God. There is no rock like our rock. There is no stability and certainty like the stability and certainty that comes from a right relationship with you and and the promises that you've given to us in the person of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray. That Hannah's depression and Hannah's desperation becomes Hannah's delight as her answers are, her prayers are answered. And Lord, I pray that each person within the sound of my voice would dare whisper a prayer. And as they pray that prayer, that Lord, you would answer their prayer.